Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings, cities, and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. Last week, the Supreme Court of the United States ended a moratorium on housing evictions. Now, 3.6 million people in this country believe they are in danger of being thrown out of their homes. And why? Because they've fallen behind on rent during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's an epic crisis in the making. But let's make no mistake. American housing isn't just a COVID problem. I mean, anyone who has lived in a big city anywhere in this country knows this as they've watched unhoused folks struggle on the streets. Most low-wage workers in all 50 states don't currently make enough to rent a one-bedroom apartment. Millennials aren't able to buy homes either because they are, on average, poorer than their parents were at the same age. COVID just makes all of this so much worse. But why are we talking about housing on a sustainability podcast? Because the last thing we need to do is worsen the climate crisis as we try and solve the housing crisis. If we have to build a lot of cheap new homes, they better be sustainable. So that's our episode today. Part one of a two episode series How can we create green, affordable housing? To start, we have to first understand something called embodied carbon. Every time we build a new building, we put carbon emissions in the air before anyone ever walks into that building. That's called embodied carbon. If we had to provide housing for every American by building new apartment blocks, that would put us deep in the red on carbon emissions. Now, if we could use existing buildings, so buildings that have already been built and ones where we don't have to put all that carbon in the air to build them. Now, if we could convert existing buildings into affordable housing, that would be something. To discuss that and other avenues to address both climate and housing security, senior editor Kelly Beeman sat down with two guests. First, Katie Svensson, Senior Principal at Mass Design Group and author of the book, Design with Love, At Home in America. And second, Shelley Halstead, who's the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Black Women Bill. In Baltimore, Halstead is helping Black women achieve housing security by helping them purchase existing rundown buildings and training them in the skills to turn those buildings into their own homes. Since we've had this this past year has highlighted so many injustices, of course, housing is a, a big, big one. I wanted to hear your opinions on issues like the overall health of some communities or lack thereof and over-policing and, and even probably some of the more nuanced issues about resources for housing in certain areas or education for potential homeowners. How has that affected your work? This is Shelly. So honestly, people are more interested in the work that we're doing. 
I don't know if they weren't interested before, but getting donations. I don't know if it's white guilt, but everybody's talking about equity and inclusion now in a more, in uh, th this is in quotes, meaningful way, which usually means dollars. So as a nonprofit, that's been really helpful. We are able to do more houses in more quick succession is really what's happening. Katie, in this climate where we've experienced you know, this sort of new awareness, right, of how many different injustices or people speaking up, calling out issues, has it affected the way that you do your work? Has it affected even the resources you can tap into? I would agree with Shelley in many ways that there's been so much of an awareness raising, I mean, at great cost, obviously. Not that there haven't always been murders of black and brown people, but from George Floyd and onward, certainly this kind of more mainstream awareness around issues of police brutality and racism in our courts and throughout our, all of our systems. What I've seen over the last few years is I used to teach a class on redlining, and now it seems like lots of people know what redlining mm -hmm. is. There were these systemic injustices that were somehow not either widely known or commonly accepted as so many of the actual building blocks of what makes our communities the way they are. When I first got into community development, I certainly didn't understand all the systems that were in place that made neighborhoods receive positive investment or lack of investment or divestment. And I do think that over the last few years, there's been a important consciousness raising about why things are the way they are. I think there was a period of time in history where it was about blaming people for poverty. And now I think there's a growing understanding that there's a larger set of systems that are at play that are constructing our cities, our housing situation, or lack thereof. The question is going to be, what's going to come of this moment? Will it transform? Will this be a moment of consciousness raising that will actually transform into substantive changes in our civic infrastructure as well as our built infrastructure. And I guess that remains to be seen. But absolutely, I would say there's greater awareness, greater attention. I think in the housing space, I'd like to think that we did have somewhat of a shared experience, not an equal experience, obviously, about what it meant to be home during coronavirus. There was a vast diversity of what that experience was. And I don't mean to underplay that, but I do think there was a notion about the primacy of home, which perhaps can also recenter us in the importance of housing that seemed to be missing in our public dialogue before. Is there anything special or urgent that you want to see change in terms of using existing housing stock? Anything that's a pet peeve or a barrier? Well, Shelley's the local expert in Baltimore. I've gotten to participate a little bit in some work there and visit a number of times, especially a neighborhood in West Baltimore. We work with a partner on West Saratoga Street. Baltimore got a sort of early start on redlining. They started race-based zoning and 
1910 before the rest of the country adopted these larger systems around race-based zoning. The rate of abandonment or slumlord ownership, I think, in Baltimore has, I don't know if it's dramatically higher than the rest of the country, but it, it definitely appears that way. I think on this one block of West Saratoga Street, there were about 42 homes, including the two corners. On that block, as of a couple of years ago, there were only eight owner-occupied homes. And so many of the others are either abandoned or blighted. There were a number that were demolished by the city because of blight. There are another dozen that are sort of in imminent danger of being torn down. There are others that are rental properties that are owned by landlords who are not around. But there's also a financial component. Those houses, at least maybe two years ago, were valued at like $33,000, $35,000. So it's very difficult, of course, to get a loan to fix your roof for a house that's valued at $33,000. So, so many of those owners, whether they're resident owners or out-of-town owners don't have access to capital based on the value of their house because that neighborhood has been disinvested so much over time. So it's hard for them to understand how as homeowners to kind of do those renovations. It sounds like Shelley's helping in that. I think one of the things that has been exciting for us to see on that particular block where a homeowner named Donald lives, he said about creating a park where three houses used to exist and the houses came down and there was a lot of dumping on those sites. Donald and his neighborhood group and team of partners set about turning this into what they now call the Kirby Lane Park. It was interesting to me that it took them about two and a half years to get these first three lots renovated. And it was impressive, really. At the time, it felt like they were actually moving kind of quickly in the larger realm of community development where things sometimes go slowly and it's hard to get the attention of the city and get the funding in place. But about two and a half years, they kept at a steady pace and finished this park. Well, coronavirus hit and I wasn't able to travel. So I hadn't been down for a year and a half. And then I went down to Baltimore about two months ago and they had overtaken four more houses had come down And in about three months, they'd overtaken those four lots and renovated them. And there are new sidewalks and street trees. And it was just so fascinating to see that I think because this neighborhood leader and neighborhood group had demonstrated this capacity, all of a sudden they had the attention of the city, they had the attention of funders, and they were able to move more quickly. It's a beautiful story within a terrible story, of course, and it's not solving the the larger issue, but we worry a lot about issues of gentrification. There's also the issue of the depreciation of value in certain neighborhoods that make it very difficult for those local homeowners to be able to renovate and keep their homes in safe and healthy shape for themselves. Were you aware of this or had you encountered this this other group? No, but I know I mean, it's near the, what is it? The highway to nowhere. So I know that area. I'm also always amazed that area is fairly close to the West Baltimore Mark station, which 
you would think all the houses around there would be worth a lot more. There'd be more commercial space and people would be commuting from there to DC. And yet it, in some places it's quite desolate. And so it's that sort of stuff like Katie was talking about, the, the values are just not there. The houses we work on, most of them are like, you know, $3,000, $4,000. They're appraised values. How do you, how do you get any, how do you get money to work on that house to, yeah, to repair that roof so that it's not leaking and then destroying other parts of your house and then eventually just falling in? What I like about that story is that these vacant lots, that those are being well used because they do become dumping grounds and I find that when they knock down houses, they like to then just euphemistically call it green space. <laughs> and I'm just like, nope, those that's green space is stewarded. You can't just have a, a vacant lot and call it green, you know? Right. It's difficult because they're doing that a lot or just taking down a house in the middle of a of a block and what that does to the block itself to have the values of those houses when you have an empty lot between you and then also the value of a house if you have a vacant house next to you and how to get insurance for that house that you live in because there's a vacant next to you. So there's a lot of problems wrapped up into the vacancy problem and then what to do with the vacants, what to do with the lots. Infill is difficult. There are some historical districts in, in Baltimore, so trying to do infill in those areas could be difficult. But I, I like that story. I think it's awesome. I actually, I don't know that part itself, but now when I get back, I'll be, I'll be passing through there. I wonder if this buzz about the Biden administration considering including houses and or housing in the infrastructure plan. And I wonder how you think that could be helpful if at all. I think that housing is the backbone of our cities and it's the backbone of our lives. From my perspective, people can choose to live in whatever way they want to live. I'm not trying to be prescriptive in any way about what one's personal choices are. If one has personal choices around what home one wants, we can say that without a home without sort of a stable home, everything else in your life falls apart. And I think that home is this basic human need. And in a larger context, we have seen a commitment in other countries to the right for housing. In the U.S., however, we don't have a stated right to housing here. We haven't made a fundamental commitment to the right of housing for all of our residents. And I think that's an essential gap in our public policy and in our larger cultural landscape around caring for each other. The idea that a home is not a base need for everyone. I think it's really shocking that in the United States, we've really allowed for homelessness to affect so many people in our communities. I don't think it was always this way. I, I don't know that people sort of realize that we've created this situation. Mm -hmm. There are obviously a number of factors that go into it, but before the 1980s, we just didn't have this degree of homelessness in our, in our country. And I think by about 1985, a combination of factors that 
lot of it coming from the Reagan administration and policies around people who are in institutions of various kinds being released without care. Certainly, there were other factors like the economy going from sort of a more industrial, high-paid economy to a service economy, this war on welfare and war on poverty. And it resulted in these high amounts of people experiencing homelessness. They didn't start counting until the early 90s, but I think the numbers were looking at 500,000 people or more experiencing homelessness in 1985. And that has continued to this day. Now there's quite an effort every year to count, which is important, but it's also embarrassing, I think, that that's some of where our effort goes into counting numbers of homeless people. And I don't know what's going to happen this year after the pandemic. It feels and appears that this is going to get to even worse crisis levels for many people, children, families, individuals. I think we have to fundamentally reorganize the way our hearts and brains and policies and economic system understands right for housing for all people in the United States. And until we do that, we're playing around the edges. I applaud the people like Roseanne Haggerty and others who are calling for a commitment to zero homelessness. I think that's really the way we need to go. Housing is currently seen as, you know, it's real estate, it's investment. I live in Brooklyn where people like to talk about how much does your apartment cost? And Everything's about real estate and what's the rising appreciation of real estate. For people who own real estate, it's one of their greatest assets. It's their source of wealth. There were many studies done, I think, in 2015 with the Federal Home Loan Bank that was looking at the color of wealth in America. I know in Boston, where I'm from, white Bostonians have on average, I think, about 680 plus thousand dollars in net wealth. And much of that is due to their real estate. And Black Bostonians have $8 net wealth. And so we've seen real estate as being a source of wealth building, which, which it is and has been for some and, and definitely not for all. But that said, I think housing as real estate is maybe contrary to housing as fundamental human need. And as long as we're in this mindset around value creation as opposed to basic needs met. And I don't necessarily mean basic. I mean, I'm not saying that housing should only be basic. I think housing should also be, you know, lovely and well-designed and a beautiful place to live and all those good things for everybody. But I do think we need a fundamental shift in our mental map about what housing means to us, what home means to us, what home means to each other. And so any attempt to interrupt a notion around housing that's only around sort of value creation for those who can afford it, any way to disrupt that notion and refocus us on sort of a fundamental commitment to providing good homes for everyone, I think is important. It makes so much sense. It's it's interesting that Shelley and I were speaking even about the name of her organization and how she's being very specific and targeted, right? Because there's also a statistic about the net worth of Black women being even worse mm. than what you just quoted, like zero. I think to me and to a lot of readers, that's why 
the work that you both do with existing housing from the lay person's point of view is just sitting there. And of course, you know, you listen to what Shelly is dealing with and what the steps are and Katie and how you have to develop these partnerships and how long it takes, you know, to make these changes. And you think it's right there. You know, these empty shells are right there. I wonder, I wonder how things could be sped up, you know? Deep Green will be back after a short commercial break. Deep Green is brought to you by Vertical Group, a Metropolis Sustainability Next partner. Vertical Group is a leading sustainability consulting firm focused on decarbonizing the built environment. Their team of multidisciplinary experts for sustainability strategy can help you achieve your project sustainability goals through LEED, Wellbeing, Living Building Challenge, and other certification project management. Engineering services like commissioning, energy modeling, sustainable event production, and life cycle assessments, and more. Visit them at verticalgroup.com. That's vertical with a D as in day to learn more and join them September 13th through 16th, 2021 at their Net Zero Conference. Check out netzeroconference.com. I don't know, thought on a daily basis because you're, you're both focused on getting the work done, but what do you think about that? How things could be sped up? Again, in terms of like expansion and I mean, what everyone likes to ask is how to scale this. How do you want to scale this? How are you going to scale this? And that's, I think that's not for me because that's not actually what I'm, I'm interested in. I've always said that for my work, this isn't a cattle call and this isn't about how many how many get through the door and how many stick and how many stay and whatever. It's like, we're trying to build community because in the areas I'm working, I can rebuild all these houses. But if you don't have buy-in about who your neighbor is and what it means to be a good neighbor, then this doesn't work. And so working in small cohorts and working on singular blocks at a time or working in clusters is the way I see it it working. I was listening to Katie and I and I wholeheartedly agree about housing being a fundamental right and how do we how do we get there? And yet, like Kelly, it's like, well, don't don't move the target yet. <laughs> Cuz real estate, owning a home and actually owning more than one home has allowed me to be able to do the things I've done. It allowed me to not have a salary for the first couple of years so that I could take on a project like this. And I don't know, I was talking to someone else and like somebody else can do this. Somebody else can, can build upon this idea and, and expand it. But I think, I don't see how it's, it's doable. I think Enterprise tried to do that in Sandtown. I don't know how much it was, 300 million or something that they poured into there. And I don't know. There's still Where's Sandtown, Shelley? It's it's West Baltimore. It's on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue from where I'm in Druid Heights and Upton on the west side. And then you have Pennsylvania and then you have Sandtown, Sandtown Winchester, so, um, which is next to Harlem Park, which is getting a huge redevelopment from a lot of developers, different developers right now. And so, you know, that was 
That's a lot of money. Well, I don't know. Is it a lot of money? 300 million seems like it to me. And that it still needs a lot of work. You know, there's still like, you can still get blocks over there. And I mean, not just like one street, but like a full block, (laughs) you know, of houses. I don't know how to, how to speed it up. When it's that many houses, like you said, some of them may be owned by the city. Some of them, an individual person who is not a resident, they are elsewhere and it's tied up. How many different causes are there for these standing blown out shells? First of all, I just say, Shelly, like a hundred percent. I mean, I think what, I think what you're doing is amazing. Figuring out first how to, of course, get yourself into like a position where you're Mm -hmm. able to then dedicate time and resources and then doing it in this very specific, grounded, in place way just seems incredible and like a key to success. And I agree with the premise that the approaches to housing, which have tried to only see it as either policy or development, have been fraught. We know that. I mean, there was a time actually when public housing in America in probably the 1930s was an incredible investment and actually really served well many people at that time. And then there was a chronic de-investment of public housing across the country and it fell into disrepair and became a place that was not, you know, a platform for opportunity for families because it wasn't kept up. I just want to say this, Katie, I feel like I recently heard that in New York, in one area in particular, even that, even the condition of the public housing was tied to systemic racism as the different groups of people moved in. This was about Stuyvesant Town. Does any of that sound familiar? Yeah, I mean, public housing that was built in the 30s, much of it was built for white families. And so that came with a different approach, for sure. So I I don't think it would be possible to see investments in housing without looking at it through a racial lens. And absolutely Stuyvesant in New York, you can look at the form of housing. I'm I'm an architect, so I look at like the form of things, but the reality is that it has very little to do with the form of housing. Stuyvesant Town is now privately owned. It's very well kept up. And public housing sites in New York, you know, they're they're actually wonderful. Some of them are wonderful places. We just put in a proposal to do a new senior housing project on New York City Housing Authority site in the Weeksville neighborhood of Crown Heights. We, we don't know if we'll get into a final round, but it was a pleasure in many ways to spend time on the campus of a New York City Housing Authority site. It's protected from the city. There are old growth trees, a lot of the landscape architecture planning that went into the design of these spaces was in some ways very lovely. But if you don't keep up, if you have rental housing and you do not keep it up for the tenants, that is going to cause all kinds of issues over time. It's not the tenant's fault. The landlord has felt fallen down on their responsibility to keep it up. So a lot of those old growth trees are there, but you know, the pavement is cracked and, and what should be landscaped is hardened earth and they're fences up in funny places and the trash is outside and whatever all the characteristics. You guys have been talking about home ownership as a critical path and absolutely. And it sounds like everything that Shelly's doing to 
bring especially black women into home ownership is 100%. But we do have rental housing as well. And that is equally important for a lot of people. There's the same issues at play though, where we need to invest in the quality of our spaces. And as, as a federal government and as a people, we have devalued things like public housing. So we don't spend the money to invest in the upkeep of public housing that we should. I 100% agree with like an incremental approach. I think my experience working through the Rose Fellowship in communities around the United States has been watching these local efforts to build culturally relevant, site-specific, community-planned, beautiful projects and outcomes in homes and communities. No question that this site-specific, people-invested, culturally resonant, beautiful building by people who care about their place and care about each other, 100% that's very powerful strategy. But I think we do need to complement that with a larger approach around our value system and making sure, for example, for the million units of public housing that exist in the country, which is a tiny number, that those are all well-appointed, that we prioritize the upkeep of those important housing units within our budget, and that we rethink our general approach. It took me years of working in housing to actually understand that of all of our housing units in the United States, less than 5% of them receive some form of subsidy for people with low incomes. And that's just a tiny number, four and a half or four, 4.75 or something percent of all of our housing units are subsidized for people with low incomes. It's just not nearly enough. And so if you look at countries where 20% or 50% or 80% are in some ways subsidized by the government to be able to facilitate the lives and livelihoods of their citizens and residents. It's just a very different thing. Working small, specific, people who care about each other deeply in places, rebuilding houses, neighborhoods, blocks is absolutely critical. And that's where I've gotten most of my sort of hope, I would say, or inspiration is being able to be witness or participate in some way. But I also think that we need to complement that with a more concerted commitment to the issue as a whole. Katie, do you think that in places where there's a need to renovate, like row houses, that those could somehow be used in a scenario where you, you're bringing them back as rental properties? Have you already done that? Oh, yeah. The texture, what we love about cities and neighborhoods is we love the diversity of the architecture. We love the, the combination of old stuff and new stuff. You can't overestimate the cultural value of existing buildings. And you also can't underestimate the sustainability function of older buildings. In the article, I was quoted as saying the most sustainable building is going to be the one that already exists. I actually really got that from my friend, Catherine Merlino, who wrote a book on the topic and I learned from. So there's no question that 
we need to invest in our existing buildings for so many reasons. I recently had a long conversation with my friend April de Simone, with whom I taught class about redlining. She is one of the initial designers of an exhibition called Undesign the Red Line. She grew up in a house in the Bronx, which her family has essentially sort of lost over time for a variety of reasons, which have everything to do with redlining and race and how her mother's life unfolded. And when we demolish houses, we demolish also their, their history. We, we demolish the cultural experience, whether it's a, quote, historic house or whether it's just a house with a history that matters to you or matters on your block. So 100% we need to be investing in the built spaces that we have for cultural reasons, certainly for sustainability reasons. But getting back, if Shelly's buying houses for 3000 you know, I assume that means to renovate them, it has to be cash. It can't be credit. Or if it is, it, it's credit that is not on that house. It's got to be on another project that I don't know. That but sounds right. I'm just saying like that kind of, that investment is just impossible. That's an impossible mm -hmm. financial equation. So, you know, in Baltimore, for example, yeah, where's the program that says we're going to, you know, $100,000 loans available to people who want to buy one house right. that they want to live in? I don't know. Maybe it's not to encourage developers to do it, but homeowners or residents. But there can be policy strategies that can be made. And I think we need that combination. I think so, too. Is it sounds like when you're surrounded or that when there's this mix, even on one block of nonprofit and like community leadership trying to do something because they live there, because they are invested, and yet you have someone who wants to come in, a developer just wants to take a profit. It's hard to make that work because the developers who want to make a profit won't come and invest until something has started to happen or you have to spend more on the house than it's actually worth than the bank would ever loan to get it livable. So that's a, that's a lot. But it's, there's also this idea of understanding your home and how to do stuff. And I think that that's, do, do you think there's a place for that, Katie, on some other model? Because it is challenging to do one homeowner at a time. As a homeowner, I guess, learning the kind of skills that you need to be your best <laughs> landlord. Yeah. I don't know. You know, oh. what can you do yourself? You have to know something so you don't get ripped off. Know at least how this stuff works. There's a woman in New York named Jean Brownhill. She's amazing. And I think that was part of the problem statement that she was trying to solve is how do you help educate homeowners how to hire subs or hire contractors and create that network for individual homeowners to be able to advocate for themselves in those contexts and those abilities to increase our knowledge base and capacity around these things is really important because obviously things can go awry, you can get swindled, other things. And we don't learn some of these skills in school or <laughs> how to be a homeowner is, is a, Gosh, is a whole process. And it, and it depends sure. on the type of home. That's another thing. I mean, being a condo owner is different from having an old house. There's so many different 
forms that it can take. And the guidebook is going to be different, right? For each one. I just got back from our mass design has an office in Mm -hmm. Kigali, Rwanda. We have about 80 architects, landscape architects, engineers, industrial designers in that office. And over the last couple of years, a lot of our larger projects are coming to fruition. It's so exciting to see what's happening there. A new hospital opened in January, another new hospital in a rural district is coming online shortly. African Leadership University, Rwanda Institute for Conservation Agriculture, these big projects. One of the things that was so fascinating to me about being there is also watching our staff in Rwanda grow in size, but also in their experience and capabilities. And, you know, there wasn't a school of architecture in Rwanda until 2009. So the first graduates of that program finished in 2013. One of those is now a principal at Mass. Before that, to be an architect in Rwanda, you had to go elsewhere for school. Leader of our of our office oh. was educated in China. One is in South Africa. So it's been interesting to watch the development of this field of architects in Rwanda and the experience that young, 20 in their 20s and maybe early 30s, architects are getting in the field because in Rwanda, not every single detail is drawn and agreed upon in advance. In the U.S., the way architecture works is like everything has to be done in the drawings and the specs and any change is a change order and has all of these kind of financial and legal ramifications. And it's interesting in Rwanda where Mass has been working to really raise the quality of design and especially, and in addition, the quality of construction. But a lot of the experience that our team in Rwanda is getting is making design decisions in the field, working out issues in this sort of more active way in the field. And it sort of reminds me in a sense of where I think the way maybe architecture used to be more in the States or maybe home ownership used to be more in the States where people maybe used to feel like, I know how to fix things. I cut my own lawn. I know how to fix things. I can clean the gutters. I can repair the dishwasher. I can put a new screen in the screen door. Now, some of those basic skills or connection to craft or connection to carpentry or mechanical or electrical systems has been professionalized. I went to architecture school because I wanted to be part of using design and the built environment to make a difference in people's everyday lives and in communities. When I graduated from architecture school from the University of Virginia, I saw an advertisement from Enterprise Community Partners for something they then called the Frederick P. Rose Architectural Fellowship, now called the Enterprise Rose Fellowship. And they were calling for quote, community architects. And I saw this and I was like, I didn't know what a community architect was, but I knew whatever that was, that was exactly what I wanted to be. And so I've somehow just spent my career asking that question, what's a community architect and how can I use my skills in design and architecture and my passion for the built environment to be able to 
create homes and beautiful communities for people. So it's been a lifelong mission and goal. And it's been amazing for me to work in so many communities around the United States and now to get to work globally with Mass to be able to join in with a group of people who are as passionate about that quest as I am. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lauren Volker. Today's story was reported by Kelly Beeman. A big thanks to today's guests, Katie Swenson and Shelley Halstead, and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series on affordable housing. Next week, we'll hear more from Shelley Halstead and what she is doing in Baltimore with Black Women Build at the intersection of racial justice, economic justice, housing security, and climate change. Join us again for Deep Green, available wherever you get your podcasts.